0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. He is risen! I want to welcome you to Heritage Christian Fellowship. My name is, is Paul Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. Man, we are... We are so thrilled that you are worshiping with us today. I want to welcome those of you that are here in the sanctuary. We got some folks out in the overflow. I know we got men and women who are tuning in online. And I want to extend a special welcome to those of you that are visiting with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're checking out Heritage Christian Fellowship. We're excited about the things we see God doing in our midst. I'd love to have a chance to meet you after the service if you're sticking around for the barbecue. I'll be bouncing around in the in the breezeway me and some of the other staff. Man, please Let us know that you are here. Come shake our hands, introduce yourselves. We'd love to meet you. I tell you what, I'm excited about about what I'm going to share with you today. This is the Super Bowl for those of us that are Christians. This is the moment in human history where everything changed. The, The day when Jesus Christ overcame sin and death. This is our great hope. Amen? Would you pray with me before I get into the message this morning? Father, I'm so thankful God, that we draw breath this morning, that our breath can be given back to you as praise. God, as we breathe in your grace today, God, may the breath that we breathe exalt you. God, fix our eyes on you. Help us understand what it means, Jesus, that you are the risen king. Help us understand what it means that we can encounter you and know you and be known by you. God, help us to fix our eyes on the beauty of the gospel that we might have life. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. My my title this morning for the sermon is Encountering the Risen King. And I've been thinking about that word encounter or encountering. Think about that word with me, if you will. I looked at some different definitions of it. Here's my working definition of what an encounter is. An encounter is an unexpected face-to-face meeting that threatens to change your life. I'll say that again. An encounter is an unexpected face-to-face meeting that threatens to change your life. I've had several such encounters in my life. I've crawled into a cave in the mountains of Montana, face-to-face with a black bear. That encounter threatened to end my life. But I've had other encounters. I've shared with you my encounter with Jesus when I was 10 that changed my life forever. I've shared with you... The encounter I had with a beautiful blonde on the steps of Hanson Hall in Jamestown, North Dakota when I was 18 years old. I now call her my wife. That encounter changed my life forever. But as I thought about the text today, as I thought about this message, and I thought about our time together, I thought about three encounters that have changed my life forever. They were the day I met my daughter Abigail, the day I met my son Elijah, and the day I met my daughter Alexandria. Those were encounters that forever changed my life. They weren't unexpected. I knew my wife was pregnant. We knew a baby was coming. But what was unexpected, and Dad's in the room, you can identify with this, I think, was the life altering way that encounter impacted my inner world. I mean, I had whole chambers of my heart that were dark and they were uh, idle and they were offline. And then all of a sudden, this dormancy of my heart when I laid eyes on my kids exploded with life and with light and and the capacity to love that I didn't even know existed. I thought I knew what love was until I encountered my children and a whole new kind of love exploded into my heart and into my mind and into my life as I fixed my eyes on my children. It's never been the same. My whole world changed. Parents, can you identify I'm guessing you have some stories of encounters that you could share as well. Counters that that maybe changed your life. Maybe you have a love story to tell and how your love encounter was a life-altering moment. Maybe those of you that are parents can talk about your kids. But we're here today on Resurrection Sunday. We're here today to exalt the name of Jesus, to fix our eyes on the living God. And so my guess is that there are many of you here today who have a story to tell about how you encountered the living God about how Christ met you in the midst of darkness and brought you into light, brought you from death to life, from ashes to beauty, from sin to salvation. Amen. My guess is there's some of you who have an encounter to tell about, about encountering Jesus, but if you're honest with yourselves today, the story is faded. It feels a bit distant. You're running on spiritual fumes. Maybe your faith is struggling. God feels distant. You're in a season of spiritual dryness, and perhaps you're, there is some acute difficulty in your life that has waged assault on your faith and i know there's some of you here today who are still seeking to encounter jesus you're here today whether you would use these words or not you're here today because there's a there's a desire within you to seek the truth and you're here today because you want to know who god is who you are in him and what this relationship is to look like as we look at our text today we're going to see three encounters with the risen christ we're going to see as his followers and friends who are, are weeping tears of pain, they're cowering and hiding in fear, they're denying the resurrection in doubt, and doubt, and Jesus encounters them in the middle of all of it, in unexpected face-to-face ways that changes their lives forever. Would you turn with me to John chapter 20? We're going to begin in verse 11 today. Like I said earlier, the title of my message is Encountering the Risen King. This is a very intentional, and I've very carefully chosen the words of this title. There's three truths stated in the title of my sermon today Jesus is King, Jesus is Risen. An encounter with the risen king is possible. Those are the three truths contained in my title. If you've been here for the last couple of services, Good Friday and Palm Sunday, we've got to soak in John's gospel. We've got to hear all this language about how Jesus is king. They waved palm branches on Palm Sunday, said Jesus is the king of Israel. John quoted Zechariah 9, 9, saying that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of a king coming into the city. Then we get to the Good Friday account in John chapter 19. We see the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus. They throw a purple robe over his shoulders, the color of royalty. They twist thorns into a crown and force it upon his head in mockery of him as king. They say, hail the king of the Jews, making fun of Jesus. When Pilate first presents Jesus to his accusers, he says, behold, your king. When, when Jesus is finally crucified and nailed to a tree, above his head on the cross is a placard that says, "Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Though that was in mockery and unwitting and, and cruelty, the people in the scriptures didn't recognize they were actually participating in the coronation of King Jesus. They didn't realize it. So Jesus is King. He's King of the universe. He's King above all kings. He's King above everything. There's none higher. Think with me for a second about the second truth contained in the title of our sermon. Jesus is risen. Jesus lived, he died, and he lived again, and he's alive today. He's defeated death, he's overcome the grave, he's defeated sin. This isn't a myth, it isn't a legend, it's not wishful thinking, it's not religious mumbo-jumbo. It is truth. History confirms the tomb was discovered empty. The body of Jesus was nowhere to be seen. In the weeks following his resurrection, the resurrected Christ interacted with his followers and empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, his followers went on to take the message of Christ across the known world in the greatest movement the world has ever known. Lee Strobel says this, the resurrection and supreme vindication of Jesus's divine identity and his inspired teaching is the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis for Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. On that first Easter morning, as Aaron read a few minutes ago, as Mary and Peter and John and others found the tomb empty, as they saw the death clothes of Jesus folded neatly inside the tomb, they didn't know it at the time, but King Jesus was alive. What's perhaps the most unbelievable truth contained in my title today is found in the word encountering. If we're going to talk about encountering the risen king, that means that Jesus, the risen king, is encounterable. I don't even know if that's a word. Jesus, the risen king, is encounterable. The first to encounter the risen king is Mary Magdalene in verses 11 through 18. In this encounter, as Mary encounters the risen king, we see him caring for her. We see the risen king caring for the hurting. Let's begin in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Jesus said to her, Do do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is Mary Magdalene encountering the risen Christ outside the tomb in the garden. This is the sovereign ruler of the universe. This is of whom John spoke of in the very beginning of his gospel when he said, through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is risen Jesus who is standing outside the tomb with Mary. This is the universe creating, death-defeating, sin-killing king above all kings. And he has just walked out of the tomb alive in, in what is the single most significant moment in all of human history by far. And as he is ushering in the kingdom of heaven, he sees his friend Mary weeping in a garden. By the world standards, Mary was a throwaway with a questionable past. She was utterly insignificant, and yet as soon as Jesus laid eyes on his friend, he paused his agenda as Lord of lords and King of kings, and he approaches her in love that he might care for her. Or maybe... Maybe he didn't pause his agenda as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Perhaps perhaps this compassionate care that we see Jesus showing Mary in the garden tomb is central to who he is and, and what his kingdom is all about. Jesus knew Mary well. He'd met her at her worst. She was a woman who was afflicted. She had seven demons. Jesus cleansed her of these seven demons, and she began to follow him. In the days leading up to this moment in, outside the tomb, Mary watched Jesus be crucified. She watched him as he was buried, and here she is in the garden, and she's weeping four times. Our text tells us that she's crying. This isn't like a soft little cry. This is a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking wail, and as Jesus looks upon Mary, he sees that his dear friend is devastated. She's confused. She's grief-stricken. And he's moved with compassion for her. So heartsick is Mary, she's unable to recognize the risen Jesus when he first speaks to her. She thinks he's a gardener. However, the sound of Jesus speaking her name is unrecognizable. Or is unmistakable, rather. In that moment, she hears Jesus speak her name. She, She... She hears his voice. She hears the tenderness in his voice. She knows his voice. And through tear-soaked eyes, she peers, and she sees the face of her Savior. Her heart is opened. Her eyes are opened. And it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, that his sheep will know his name. Mary is one of God's sheep. And as she's grieving, Jesus draws near to her. He speaks her name with care in his voice. She's overjoyed. She clings to the feet of Jesus. He says, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Why was Mary clinging to the feet of Jesus? Maybe she was just excited that he, was, he wasn't dead. It was just a joy to grab him. Oh my goodness, Lord, you're alive. Or, or maybe she clung to his feet because she was hoping he had returned to, to establish an earthly kingdom. Or maybe she was clinging to his feet because she was anticipating his ascension and she didn't want him to go yet. We don't know why Mary clung to the feet of Jesus. But, Mary, uh, but Jesus says to Mary, no, no, don't, don't cling to me. I have something for you to do. You're the first one whose eyes have been opened to me, the risen king, so go and tell others. Go to the brothers and tell them this good news. You know, as I see Mary in this garden, as I see her weeping in my mind's eye, as I see Jesus drying her tears, I'm reminded of a day that awaits all who follow Christ, a day where Jesus will abolish the tears of sorrow. This is a promise John writes about in the book of Revelation. One day in the new heavens and the new earth in this garden city that awaits all are in Christ, one day Jesus will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his sheep. One day in that place, death will be no more. Mourning will be no more. Crying and pain will be no more. The former things, those things that cause us pain and affliction, will be gone with forever. And Jesus will make all things new. He's not going to make all new things He's going to make all things new. That means that Jesus Christ is going to put his restorative, redemptive hand to work at putting back together all those things that are broken. They'll be put back together to his glory and in a beautiful way. As I, as I sat in this text this week, as I thought about this moment, as I thought about the men and women who God was going to gather in this place, I, I, wondered, I wondered what sort of pain is present in this room today. I wonder if we could go for a walk or go out for a cup of coffee, if you would allow me to ask some probing questions about what's going on in your world, your inner world. I wonder what sort of stories you would tell. I wonder what sort of pain is present in this place this morning. If your tears could speak, I wonder what they would say. Perhaps your tears would speak of a deep grief. Perhaps your tears would speak of a despair that has just settled into your bones. Maybe your tears would talk of depression or loss. Maybe your tears would speak of unending pain. I'm reminded of the words of David as he was enduring a season of suffering where tears were the norm. He called out to God in Psalm 56, and here's what David said to God. God, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. What David was saying to God is it's incredible. He was saying that not a single Tear rolled down his cheek that goes unnoticed by God. Every tear, God knows of. He records each one in his book. Said another way Our God is not distant. He is not an uninterested God. He's not an unfeeling and unmoving God. He is not unmoved by your pain. Our God sits with you and He sits with me in the ashes of our pain. He shares in our pain and He offers us His comfort. In Christ, in this scene, in that garden that morning, we see the heart of God towards those who are in pain. It's an intimate heart. It's a loving heart that draws near and offers care. Are you hurting today? If you are, if that's part of your story this morning, how encouraging to know that the risen Christ encounters you in your pain. He encounters you in this place Hear him call your name like he called Mary's name. Jesus, the risen king, is encounterable. The second to encounter the risen king is a collection of his disciples. Uh, In this second encounter, in this 20th chapter of John, we see how Jesus, the, the risen king, comforts those in fear. We see how Jesus, the risen king, comforts those in fear. Take a look with me at verses 19 through 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, we can't lose sight that this is Jesus Christ, the risen. King, the sovereign ruler of the universe. This is the promised seed of Eve that we've read about in uh, in, in Genesis chapter 3. He has come and he has accomplished the crushing of the head of the serpent. This is the death-defeating, serpent-crushing, promise-fulfilling king over all things. And as a group of his disciples are gathered behind locked doors, hiding and cowering in fear, terrified at the fate that befell Jesus might now befall them, Jesus takes time to draw near to them to encounter them. And what does he say to them? He says, peace be with you. He says it twice, peace be with you. Some of these are the very men that abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers approached to arrest him. These are the men that failed Jesus days earlier and yet his first words are not words of condemnation but words of peace. He doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say, I'm disappointed in you. He doesn't say, you're a bunch of failures that you left me in my hour of greatest need. No, this risen king, he chooses to encounter his disciples, and in the midst of their fear, he extends his peace to them. And their fear was warranted. I mean, keep in mind that these disciples had just witnessed the traumatizing and brutal arrest, beating, crucifixion, and death of Jesus. Jesus. And they were huddled behind locked doors, and they were justified in doing so because they knew that the same crowd that came after Jesus might come after them. But then behind locked doors, Jesus comes and he stands among them. And this is miraculous. Some people think it's miraculous because Jesus walked through locked doors. Some people think it's miraculous because Jesus miraculously unlocked the door. The real miracle in this scene, and that upper room on that night, is that the risen physical Christ with his body, his glorified body, is now standing before the very men who watched him die. Can you imagine what they must have thought? I mean, the last time they saw Jesus, he was this ravaged, unrecognizable, lifeless lifeless corpse that was laid in a borrowed man's grave, and yet now the glorified risen king is standing in their presence, and he's speaking words of peace over them. Listen to this. He goes behind locked doors, encountering the fearful and offering peace. I want you to hear those words. Jesus goes behind locked doors, encountering the fearful and offering peace, and he does so in grace. And in an instant, the disciples, they go from fear to peace to joy. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, it says in verse 20. I read this week that Jesus' greeting of peace and the assurance of his identity calmed their fears and demonstrated unmistakable proof that he was alive. The disciples were overjoyed not only to see him again, but also to realize that he was undefeated by death and that his claims were validated. And then just like Jesus had sent Mary to tell the disciples of this good news, Jesus now says to these disciples that they're going to be sent as well. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In the book of Acts, would go on to, to detail, to chronicle the sending of these disciples as the expansion of Christ's kingdoms grows across the known world. And here we are 2,000 years later on the opposite side of the planet, sitting under the preached word, encountering Christ as a result of the sending of those men who were one time frozen in fear. What changed? How do these men that were cowering behind closed doors, terrified and afraid, what changed in their life that, that emboldened them to go and take the gospel message to the ends of the earth for the glory of God? What changed? Look at verse 22. Jesus breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. When Jesus breathed on them, this is a, a foretaste of what would happen in, in Acts when, 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 when the power of the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the church and they would be emboldened and given power to be the witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. This is where we are today. From where they were sent 2,000 years ago, we are at the ends of the earth. I'm reminded of the words of Christ at his ascension when he says to his disciples that are gathered at his ascension, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I imagine this scene I just try to imagine this scene. Here's the the, the risen Christ breathing divine breath upon his disciples. And as I think of Jesus breathing breath, like the the, the breath of life on his disciples, I'm reminded of what we've been studying in the sermon series we've been in here at Heritage since November. The creation account. Chapter 2 of Genesis. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And we've studied as man then sinned and brought death into the world. But here, as I'm looking at this upper room on that night, we're seeing a a sort of recreation. Where sin overcame Adam in the wilds of Eden, Jesus overcame sin in the wilderness temptation. Where death entered through Adam's disobedience in the garden of Eden, death ended through Christ's obedience in the garden of Gethsemane. Where God promised a victorious seed that would one day crush the head of the serpent, Jesus came as that seed. His resurrection is the victory that crushed the enemy. And here in this locked room, among these once terrified men, Jesus breathes Holy Spirit life and Holy Spirit power onto these men. It's a picture of recreation. This is Jesus ushering in a new reality and a new humanity. Jesus says to them, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is simply the power of the gospel message. Jesus is saying, Where you go, disciples, when you're empowered and emboldened by the Spirit of God, you who are once weak will be made strong by the power of the Spirit. In your weakness, God's strength will be made perfect. And as you go out in my name, and as you proclaim this gospel message to the world, as men and women hear it and respond to it, they will receive forgiveness and salvation to all who believe. What an incredible transformation. Think of these men. From fearful, cowering men, who upon encountering the risen Christ are transformed into faithful missionaries who turned the world upside down. How incredible that you and me, finite human beings, can encounter the infinite God, the risen King. As I imagined these terrified disciples that night in that room, I, I thought about the men and women who were going to be gathered here this morning. I wonder what sorts of fears might be gripping the hearts and minds of the men and women who are gathered here today. Perhaps you know what it is, figuratively or even literally, to cower behind locked doors, to feel entrapped by fear, fear of failure. Perhaps you're terrified of the decay and the spiraling of the world around us. Perhaps your fear is one where you're, you're terrified of losing control, or you have a fear of loneliness or insecurity. Or maybe you have a fear that the desires of your heart that you've been asking God for for so many years aren't going to come true. Maybe your fear is death. I don't know. I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the words of God that he spoke through the prophet Isaiah when he said, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not not be dismayed, for I am your God. He said, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In other words, when fear rises in the hearts of God's people, we look to him. He's never asleep at the wheel. He's at work in all things. So the question is, are you struggling with fear today? If you are, If you are struggling, if you're like those men 2,000 years ago, the risen Christ encounters you in your fear and in this place today. He says to you the same thing he said to those men 2,000 years ago, peace be with you. Jesus, the risen king, is encounterable. He encountered Mary in her pain and cared for her. He encountered the disciples in their fear and he comforted them. The third to encounter the risen Christ is doubting Thomas, the final picture. In the third encounter, we see how Jesus, the risen king, confronts unbelief. We see how Jesus, the risen king, confronts unbelief. Look with me at verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand in the place in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I mean, this is eight days after the resurrection. Thomas doubts uh, the testimony of his friends. He refuses to believe that Christ is risen. And though Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven's throne, the risen king decides it's important to pause whatever it is he's up to to seek after Thomas and in love to confront him in his unbelief. I mean, it just blows my mind. This is, I mean, this is Jesus Christ. This is the creator of the universe who spins the earth on its axis, who placed the stars in the sky, who breathes the breath of life into our lungs, who numbers our days, who numbers the stars, sovereign king, sovereign creator of all things, the Alpha, the Omega, and he pauses all of that to look at one guy who has some doubt. And he pauses everything, and his love is so personal and so focused and so intentional that he pauses all of that, and he says, but my, my friend Thomas... It just blows my mind. I mean, this is the Alpha, the Omega, the Bread of Life, the Cornerstone, the Good Shepherd, the Prince of Peace, the Victorious One. And he sees little doubting Thomas, and he draws near to him. Isn't that crazy? He's not angry. He just has a love for this man. And so he avails himself. Touch the holes in my hands. See the wound in my side. Stop doubting Thomas and believe, he says. He says. And Thomas gets to touch the very wounds by which he would be healed and find forgiveness. And Thomas cries out a confession unto God, my Lord and my God. Jesus' response speaks to this room today. What does Jesus say? He says to Thomas, essentially, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's you and me. You are those who believe without seeing. That's you and me today. Though we do not see like Thomas saw, we still encounter Jesus and we still have opportunity to believe. As I consider these encounters with the risen, glorified King, I've been thinking about this all week. And The physical nature of Jesus is wondrous to me. I don't understand it fully, but the physical nature of Jesus, fully God, fully man, is wondrous to me. Mary clung to the physical, yet risen, glorified feet of Jesus The disciples in that upper room felt the physical warm breath that flowed from divine lungs brush across their face. Thomas touched the scars in the hands of Jesus, wounds that were not a defect but a glory, scars that tell us that our God knows our pain, scars that tell us to what ends our God will go to to show us love, scars that tell us that our final victory is in Jesus, and each of these encounters were intensely personal. They were physical. They were interpersonal. The the, the physicality of Jesus blows my mind. And when he ascended into heaven, that physical nature of Jesus didn't end. He is still physical. When we think of Jesus today on heaven's thrones and we encounter him through his word preached and through the Holy Spirit, we too are encountering that same personal, physical Savior that we read of in this text today. It's wondrous to me. As I considered this and as I prayed for the people of heritage, I wondered what sort of doubts might live in the hearts and minds of those of you who are gathered in this place today. I wondered if, like Thomas, there are some among us who have said, God, I won't believe unless... Dot, dot, dot. Maybe that's you. God, I won't believe unless you do this or you do that or you show me this or you show me that. Maybe you look out at the world today and you're flooded with doubts. How could a loving God allow that to happen? Maybe you look out at the world today and you think to yourself, hasn't science replaced God or which version of God is correct? Or maybe you look at your own world. Maybe you look internally and you doubt that God is good. You doubt that he's sovereign. You doubt that he exists. So the question is, are you struggling with doubt today? If you are, the risen Christ encounters you in this place, much like he encountered Thomas 2,000 years ago. He confronts you in love, in your unbelief, and he says, stop doubting and believe. So the risen king cares for the hurting, he comforts the fearful, and he confronts the unbelieving. Why? Why does he do this? Why did Jesus encounter Mary in her pain and comfort her? Why did Jesus condescend to to comfort these disciples in their fear? Why did Jesus pursue Thomas and encounter him that he might confront him with truth? Why would God inspire John to record these events for us today? Why did God leave these words in the Scriptures that we today, 2,000 years later, can read of these encounters in this place? Well, he tells us in the last two verses of the chapter. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Why does Jesus choose to encounter people? Well, the last thing I would encourage you to write down if you're taking notes is the risen King came to give life. The risen King came to give life. This is the whole point of the cross. This is the whole point of the resurrection. This was the, 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 the means by which God was going to overcome sin and death. Only God in Christ could accomplish that, and he did it so that you and me might believe and have life, new life, saved life, abundant life, forgiven life, everlasting life, righteous life, eternal life, Whether you're in pain, or you're in fear, or you're in doubt, or you're in some other station in life, Jesus, the risen King, is encounterable, which means he's knowable. And when we come to know Jesus, when we come to believe in his name, that is where we find life. The world screams to you a million ways to find life, but it's a lie. How many of you have hopped on the paths of life, the lives of life, believing that those lies are going to lead to some kind of life, and you get miles down the path, and you realize it was a lie, and there's no life to be found, and you're left sitting in the ashes, what have I done? There's one place to find life, and it's in Jesus Christ, life with a capital L, the life that God intends for us to have. And as I think about the life that we can have in Jesus' name, I think about the way he draws near to those who are in pain and those who who doubt and, and those who are afraid. I'm reminded of the words that John writes in the very beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Here's what John writes. To all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, to all who did receive Jesus who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To have life in Jesus' name is to be born of God. It's to be reborn as a child of God. This is what Jesus meant when he was talking to Nicodemus, and he said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To believe in Jesus, the risen king, To have life in his name is to be born again into the family of God. It is to be saved. When I hear the language of new birth, when I consider the the spiritual birth of God's redeemed people, I think back to the birth of my kids. I think back to that moment when I laid eyes on my kids and that explosion of love overwhelmed me and I wonder, what is it like when God looks at you and when God looks at me? I mean, I think back to the unending love uh, that I had for my children, and I think I'm a good dad. I think of the hell a good father will go through to provide for and care for his children, and yet I know how finite and flawed humans can be. And even though I want to love my kids as best as I can, I have a finite and flawed love for my children, and I know that. But not so with God. His love is not finite and flawed, His love is infinite. And it's flawless. And in his love, in his self-giving perfect love that manifested on the cross, he has made a way. His love for us has done everything necessary for you and for me to be born again into his family, to be saved from our sin, to be brought from death to life, from ashes to beauty, from darkness to light. In fact, if you look at John 1.12, we see what we must do to be saved. And maybe this is for you today. At the beginning of my message, I talked about how there's some of you here who've been searching for an encounter with Jesus. Well, today is your day. As you look back at 1 John, verse 12, John writes to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice three words in that verse. Believe, receive, and become. This is how we become children of God. Believe in his name. Jesus is the son of God. Believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by his perfect life, his sinless death and his resurrection, he has done all the work necessary that you might be saved. He bore your sin. The thing that separates you from God was placed on the shoulders of Jesus and when he went to the cross and he was nailed to the cross, your sins were nailed to the cross. The things that separate you from God were dealt with on the cross. The wrath of God, the just punishment for your sin was poured out on Jesus. He satisfied the justice of God. And when he conquered the grave, when he rose to life, he offers you and me the hope of new life, of forgiveness, of salvation, that we might be born again into the family of God. And all we have to do upon believing is receive this amazing gift. We don't do anything to earn it. It's a gift received. Receive the free gift of forgiveness that Christ purchased in his life on the cross. And when you believe and when you receive you become a child of God. It's that simple. No secret formula. Not a list of requirements. All God asks of you is a childlike trust that he is exactly who he says he is. And that in and through Jesus, you have forgiveness, you have a new life, and you have an eternal hope. Jesus, the risen king, is encounterable. If you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've never had a moment in your life where you have said a prayer to God, a prayer of faith, a prayer of salvation unto God, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I'm so thankful for the men and women who you have gathered in this place today. God, I'm thankful for the saints who are here exalting your name and worshiping you, God. I'm thankful for those who are here seeking truth, God, and I know they are here. God, I'm mindful of those men and women right now in this place whose heads are bowed and they know they've never trusted you with their very lives, but God, you encounter them in whatever station of life they are. Maybe it's a station of, of, of fear. Maybe it's a station of pain. Maybe it's a season of doubt, but God, you encounter us in this place by the power of your spirit. Would you open hearts, open eyes. God, give us the faith and obedience to believe in your name. And God, I pray. I pray for those among us who've never trusted you that right now, at this moment, in this place, they would say a prayer to you in the quiet place of their heart, a prayer that would say something like this. I need you, Jesus. I believe you are the son of the living God. I believe that your perfect life, your sinless death, your resurrection have purchased for me the hope of salvation. And today, I am trusting you with all of me. Would you forgive me, Lord? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit as I receive your gift of salvation, God? Would you enable me to become a child of God? I pray this prayer of faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.